Open your Bibles to Romans 15 in uh, a section, whether you realize it or not, is the climax of Paul's message to the Romans. He wraps up, we might say, the body of what he has to say in these few verses from verse 7 through verse 14 of Romans 15. You might think it, uh, or I should say, you might miss the fact that it's the climax because Paul has much to say beyond this, beginning in verse 15 of this chapter and running all the way through the end of chapter 16. He has a, a whole host of greetings and travel plans and all kinds of things that he talks about, the longest of those kinds of sections in any of Paul's letters. But in this section, he finishes up his basic dealings with uh, the doctrines and the implications, the applications of that for the Roman church. So before he gets to those closing comments, he, he writes to them in verse 7, he says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it's written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. This is Paul's final point. This is the way he sort of closes out his argument in the book wraps all of this up, and you can see, even as he goes through all of this, his final aim is the glory of God. That's what he gets at in verse 7, Jesus Christ receiving us for the glory of God. Or even the Gentiles in verse 9, glorifying God for His mercy. Or in verse 10, rejoicing in the Lord together with the Jews. Or in verse 11, praising the Lord and extolling Him. Or verses 12 and 13, hoping in God with joy in belief. And the whole picture, the whole outcome of the whole deal is everything aiming at this ultimate purpose of glorifying God. And what he's talking about here ultimately is their salvation. What he's talking about ultimately is the message of the gospel. The very same message he started in the very beginning of the book when he he tells them, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God for it's, uh, excuse me, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that's the way he sort of opened his argument saying this This is a gospel that applies to both groups, to all groups, to all peoples. Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, Jew and non-Jew, however you want to translate it. He says this is a message of salvation for everyone who believes. In fact, in the very first two verses of Romans, 
He talks about being a minister of the gospel that was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So not only was Paul talking about this gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles, but he was talking about it being grounded in the Scriptures from the very beginning. And here we are at the end. And again, he's just rolling off uh, Scripture after Scripture, validating his point. Talking about uh, even what he mentioned in those opening verses. You remember, he laid out that gospel and then he immediately in the first three chapters explained what this gospel means. How that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How everyone who has sinned without the law will perish without the law. And those who sinned under the law will be condemned by the law. So that every mouth will be stopped and every person will stand before God one day guilty if they are not in Christ. That's his message. His message of redemption and reconciliation began with a message of sin. But it wasn't where he ended because he, at the end of chapter 3, tells us that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That is to say, you can escape this judgment. You can stand before God instead of being condemned You can stand before God as justified, as just, as righteous, as he goes on to say. And he takes that, and in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, he unfolds that, how all of that was really the plan of salvation from the very beginning. He uses verse after verse from the Old Testament to illustrate that. And then in chapter 8, explains how those who then place their faith in Jesus Christ have no more condemnation. There is therefore No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death, he says. Those who are in Christ, he says, receive his spirit. Their sins are not only forgiven, but they're given new life, a new heart, a new inner man, a new being from the inside so that they worship the Lord. They worship God. In chapters 9 through 11, he explained how all of this fits within the prophecies of the Old Testament, particularly those that talked about a special election for Israel, a special, a special choosing of Israel. And he explained how God was incorporating and grafting in Gentiles into that plan. And then, as we began to see in chapter 12, he took all of that and, and summarizing it under this whole idea of mercy, he told us how we should respond to this merciful and gracious plan of God. We respond, he says, by presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. We present ourselves to Him. That's the first step, really, in accepting and in receiving this gospel. It isn't just hearing it, but it's understanding what Jesus Christ says, that if you want to be His disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow Him. That if you want to gain life, you have to first lose your life in order to find true life. And so Paul's just bringing all that message to us and, and beginning to explain to us what this new life in Christ looks like. He talks about it in chapter 12, about how we're going to live out this, this life with sober judgment, no longer thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think genuinely loving each other, trusting in the Lord, resting in His care, leaving vengeance into the hand of the Lord, as He says. 
Even in chapter 13, established governments being established by God, we're going to submit to them, trusting that God will take care of whatever injustices may come. Talk about fulfilling the law of God by loving each other as Christ has commanded. And then in chapter 14, he brings all of that to bear on the situation in their church, which was divisions, divisions between what he calls the weak and the strong. Basically, those who were weak in their conscience, that is to say, they were bothered in their conscience. We might even say they were immature in their conscience. There were some people who, who struggled with a number of things, a number of behaviors and activities. It bothered them, it bothered their conscience, and Paul, Paul calls them weak. There were others in the church that he called strong. We might call them mature. That is to say, they felt a freedom in their conscience to do all kinds of things. And particularly, when he gets into the nuts and bolts of it, he's talking about things like dietary laws, Sabbath laws, which just leads people to the conclusion that this must be basically a divide between Jews and Gentiles, because these have to do with Old Testament laws. The Old Testament was full of laws about what you can and cannot eat. It was full of laws about festivals and feasts and new moons and Sabbath. And so with all this division, with all this uh, uh, separating within the church, people were offending one another by the kinds of things they did or the kinds of things they didn't do. And instead of experiencing a loving fellowship, the church was being separated. We might even say torn apart by these kinds of personal lifestyle choices. Paul never labels it necessarily with ethnic divisions, but it's important for you to understand that that's essentially what was happening. You had on the weak side of the ledger, you might say, on, those, on that side of those people who were struggling, that their conscience was bothered if they didn't keep a Sabbath. Their conscience was bothered if they ate certain foods. On that side would have been primarily Jewish believers. These were people who were raised to have certain apprehensions about different kinds of food, certain apprehensions about certain days and doing activity on those days. On the other side would have been Gentiles who weren't raised under those kinds of restrictions, didn't have those kinds of apprehensions, and felt a freedom in their conscience. And so certainly on both sides there would have been exceptions. There might have been some Gentiles who... Maybe because of pagan worship practices, they had some associations with certain kinds of foods and and maybe it bothered them with certain kinds of meats whenever they would eat them. Or on the other side, you might have some Jews who did have freedom in their conscience. They did understand the, the implications of the new covenant. They understood that they were freed from the restrictions of the law and so they had a freedom But whatever the case is, it it appears that the primary division that uh, had come was still along those lines of Jew and Gentile. So all that to say is when Paul gets to Romans 14 and 15, those very same themes that he had from the very beginning of the book, salvation, the glory of God, the gospel, forgiveness of sins, Jew and Gentile, have been the course down which he is walking and which he is pursuing all the way through this. 
It's so important that you understand that because if you don't, you won't really get the background of what Paul has to say in our verses that we're going to look at today. Because he begins to talk suddenly, it might seem, about Jews and Gentiles. He hasn't mentioned Jews and Gentiles since chapter 11. So we went all the way through chapter 12, all the way through 13, all the way through 14, and hasn't mentioned Jew or Gentile at all. And then suddenly, here he is again talking about this contrast between Jews and Gentiles. And you have to understand that as he's doing this, he's still talking about this basic divide that was running through the church and it just happened to run primarily along these ethnic lines. And what Paul comes to do here in the closing out of his letter, the closing out of the body at least of his letter, is he is applying all of the profound theology that he's laid out throughout the book to this basic issue within the body of Christ. He's basically pulling back away from the situation, away from what might be the relatively small issue of whatever was dividing them. And he's framing it within the broad, broad scope of God's overall plan for eternity, for salvation. And he's helping you and I to see that if we can get our minds off of these petty disagreements that might separate us from time to time and get our minds on the overall plan of God, it generates, it maintains unity within the body of Christ. More importantly, it reflects on the glory of God. The big picture is that you and I, if we... If we can look at the situation as we ought to, what we ought to see, what we ought to long for is to see a whole church, Jew and Gentile, weak and strong, whatever the groups might be, a whole church united for the glory of God. We ought to be able to get beyond whatever we consider to be personal grievances, personal weaknesses of others, and stand united in the worship of our Savior because that is the ultimate plan and the goal of why Christ came and what the gospel was aimed at. That's what Paul's spelling out in these verses. Now, within that overall message, I think we can identify then from what he's saying here for elements of a church that has that kind of unity, four elements of a church that keeps that kind of focus, four elements of a church that is united for the glory of God. And, and he presents them to us here. We, we can note, first of all, the first of these elements in verse 7 is simply that a church united for God's glory is a church that remembers Christ's mercy. It remembers Christ mercy. And we've talked about this really throughout our whole study of Romans 14. There's no need for us to belabor the point. But Paul's words there in verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's sort of the closing statement, if you will, from the whole discussion in chapter 14. He, he transitions even with the word, therefore. And he sets before us the example of Christ. As we wrestle with possibly separating, dividing from other believers, or on the other hand, accepting and receiving and welcoming one another, Paul just wants to remind us, he wants to put in front of us the fact of Christ's example. 
in accepting us. This is, remember, how he began chapter 14, urging, commanding believers to accept one another, to believe one another, to welcome one another. And we looked at it back then, how this word is used throughout the New Testament. Just some wonderful pictures. Luke 28, where Luke says that Paul and he were shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and the native people of the island showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us. Same word. Because it began to rain and was cold. It's just a wonderful image. Unusual kindness towards these strangers. They weren't a part of their tribe. They weren't a part of their group. They didn't share the same customs, may not have shared the same language, whatever it was, but they welcomed them in, built them a fire, and showed them kindness when they really had no reason to do so. We even talked about how Paul uses it in Philemon, where he urges Philemon to welcome his runaway slave, Onesimus. Again, a beautiful picture of love and kindness because Onesimus had sinned. He had offended Philemon. He'd not only run away against the law, but he may have even stolen some things. Paul implies he stole some things from Philemon along the way. And so Paul says, welcome him, but don't just welcome him. Welcome him the way that you would welcome me. Show him the kind of friendship that you would show to one of your closest friends. Treat him with the same affection Treat him with the same friendship as you would show me, as someone who had never done anything against you. As fact, treat him as if he was someone the Lord had used in your life. Treat him that way. Welcome him with that kind of affection. Or it was used in Acts 18, you remember when Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos aside. They heard him teaching. He was eloquent in his speech, eloquent in the way he taught the scriptures, but there were apparently deficiencies In his teaching, Acts 18 tells us, he had some gaps, we might say, in his theology. And rather than railing against him, and rather than condemning him, rather than running away from him, or whatever it might be, what they did is they took him aside. It has the idea of intimacy, the idea of gentleness and kindness. They pulled Apollos away from the crowd, away from the public arena, away from what could be potentially a publicly embarrassing situation. And they brought him into the more intimate place of their private fellowship and they counseled with him and they dialogued with him and they discussed with him what the better way was, the true understanding of the Scripture. And so everywhere you look, you have this idea of intimacy, of bringing someone closer instead of maybe pushing them away. And Paul's saying, this is what Christ did for you. He welcomed you. He received you. He brought you near to Himself. He established a relationship of intimacy between yourself and Himself. And Paul's saying that we ought to be receiving welcoming, bringing people into our circle. Those who may disagree with us on all kinds of areas of conscience, they may make different choices than us, live their life different than us, do different things with their time and money than we would do. But we need to receive them despite the differences as Christ received us. So the question really becomes how did Christ receive us? How did Christ receive you? How did He welcome you? 
How did he accept you? On what basis? Did he receive you because you had it all together? Did he receive you because you had answered all the questions, you had figured all out, figured out all the problems, you perfectly understood all the scripture, you did everything just right, you never faltered, you never failed, you never made mistakes, you never did anything selfish. Is that why he, he accepted you? Is that why he received you? Did he receive you because you were the most acceptable, the most lovely? Did he, did he receive you because you met all of his criteria and satisfied all of his standards? Of course not. That runs contrary to everything that Paul has said in the gospel. So the question is, if Jesus received you with all of your weaknesses, with all of your sin, with all of your deficiencies and failings and hang-ups and fleshliness, if he saw you in that condition and didn't refuse you but brought you into intimate fellowship with himself, if that's how he received you, Isn't that how you should accept one another? Listen to this, Colossians 3. Put on as God's chosen ones. So here you are, you're a chosen one. You're beloved, you're you're, you're elect, you're one of God's own. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Same standard. You say, but oh no, Shane, you don't understand. This is different. I mean, this can't apply because, I mean, if you knew, if you just knew what that person did to me, If you just knew how offended I am by that person. If you just knew. Well, I mean, I don't need to know. I know enough about the gospel to know that you were never worthy. Not by a mile. For what Christ did for you. The Bible doesn't provide any qualifiers. It doesn't say under these circumstances and under these limited conditions do what Christ did for you. It is just do what He did for you. Accept others the way He accepted you. Receive one another. Welcome them. Look, if you refuse to welcome and accept one another as Christ has accepted you, what you're basically saying to Christ is, yeah, I understand what you did for me, but I have a higher standard. I I got a higher standard. Yeah, you can accept me that way, but there's a few other boxes that need to be ticked. For me to accept this person. I, I know that you receive sinners, but I demand more. What a crazy thought, right? What an, what an irreverent, what a selfish and hypocritical thought. Because what you're immediately doing is you are applying to others, you're measuring others by a standard that you do not want to be measured by. Which is Jesus' definition for what? Hypocrisy. It's It's hypocrisy. So the real question is, has Jesus received you? Or more importantly, has He received these people? The The very ones that you're rejecting. Has He received them? Has He accepted them in His gospel? Have they confessed 
their need for a Savior? Have they believed in Him as their Lord? Have they received Him and has He received them? Does He consider them worthy of His friendship based on His sacrifice? And if His sacrifice is sufficient for Him, shouldn't it be sufficient for you? Listen to this verse, Matthew 10, Jesus speaking to His disciples. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. In other words, if you're not able to receive or welcome some brother or sister in the fellowship, you're not only rejecting this fellow believer, you're rejecting Christ. You're rejecting His work, you're rejecting the one who sent Him, you're rejecting God Himself. I don't know if you've ever done this. I learned very early as a young man the, the kind of ire and the kind of disdain that you can earn from a parent if you reject their child. I had a friend in high school and um, he was a difficult guy to get along with. And we hung out at his house for a little bit, but it just, you know, we just thought, you know, this is not, not a good place. This guy is... Uh, you know, very self-centered or whatever like that. And, and in some unwise moment, I, you know, my, my buddies and I were talking about this guy and his mom was in the same room. And she may have known the issues that he had, but when she heard her son being rejected and disdained like that, uh, she, she turned on us the way we needed to be turned on. I mean, we deserved what we got. But I just, I just remember being struck by no matter what the foibles are of that person, a parent loves their child. And what really Paul is talking about here is rejecting children of God, sons and daughters of God. And you can imagine if he's accepted them, if he has received them, if he welcomes them, if they're part of his family and his fellowship, and then you turn around and reject them, what do you think that does? It stirs the Lord's anger. This is serious stuff. Now I want you to notice, beyond that basic point, I want you to notice at the end of verse 7, why Christ welcomed us. Why He received us. Because this really is the key to the whole passage. At the end of the verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of of God. Christ welcomed us for the glory of God. He reconciled us in order to bring glory to God. He welcomed us because he knew that it would generate praise and honor and worship of the one true God. That's why he did it. There was an an element that went beyond even us individually. As he received us, he did it in order to create an assembly, a body of believers who would worship the Father. And he understood that this would generate worship to God even from imperfect vessels in this life. But it would generate worship to God to bring sinners even to a place of relationship with Him. Which really leads to our second element of a church that's united for the glory of God because Paul builds on this and confirms this in the following verses. And, and it leads to the second element that a, a church that is united for God's glory confirms Scripture's testimony. 
It confirms Scripture's testimony. You'll notice this, this little particle there in verse 4. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So a church united for God's glory confirms the testimony of what the Word of God says about Christ's work. And in this particular situation, Paul dives deep into the rich, rich testimony of Scripture and the plan of God of bringing together Jews and Gentiles. He hasn't mentioned Jews and Gentiles since chapter 11, but he reinserts the issue here to remind them that what we participate here, what we participate here on Sunday morning, what we're doing here today is a work that has a grand scheme laid out from the Old Testament even up through eternity future. A grand scheme of God bringing together Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is challenging them to consider this overall plan of God for their fellow believers, even weak and strong. I tell you that Christ has become a servant to the circumcised, that is, to the Jews. And He did it, why? To show, to confirm God's truthfulness, to confirm God's promises. He was a servant to the Jews. He did what was necessary in order to reconcile them to God. That is how he became their minister. That's how he served them. And the reason he did it was not because they were worthy of it. In fact, Israel was quite disobedient. They had turned their backs on God. They had turned to idolatry, all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of sin. They had proven themselves utterly unworthy of God's electing love. In fact, the whole Old Testament just demonstrates that again and again and again. And yet God had made these promises to them. Even when He gave the promises, He even prophesied that as He gave the promises, they would still not believe Him. You read Deuteronomy 30 and He says, look, you're going to reject My covenant, you're going to turn away from all these things, and I'm still going to come and circumcise your hearts. God made promises to the patriarchs as Paul says here he made promises to Abraham in Genesis 15 specifically for Israel. And then he confirms that in Genesis 22. He expands and reconfirms it to David in 2 Samuel 7. And over and over again, he, the, the Old Testament is written against the backdrop of these promises. And so Israel was to understand that God had every reason to reject them, and yet He didn't. He didn't. But why? Because he had made these promises. And Paul says that Christ came. He came to serve Israel. To bring about the work that God had always promised to Israel. Particularly as you get to the new covenant to understand how God was going to keep all these promises. And and yet make Israel his own people at the same time. If God had rejected Israel, it would have made him, according to the Scripture, according to what Paul's saying here, if God had rejected Israel, it would have made him untruthful. It would have made him unfaithful to his promises. But Jesus came, redeemed Israel by giving himself on a cross, taking God's wrath upon himself, taking the place of Israel under God's wrath. 
so that every believing Jew could be saved and become the kind of Jew that God had commanded them to be all the way through the Old Testament. And all this allowing God to keep His promises to one day redeem Israel to make them into the nation that He spoke about over and over again. But that was only half the work. That was only half the work. Because Paul goes on to speak with the other half in verse 9. Because not only did he do this for the circumcised, that is for the Jews, but in verse 9, he did it also in order that Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So God clearly laid out his plan and his purpose for Israel, but in addition to that, he also spoke of a plan for the Gentiles. And Paul summarizes this plan as being simply this, that they might glorify God for his mercy. The other half of Jesus' work in receiving sinners, he received not only Jews, but he received and welcomed Gentiles so that they might become a part of the people of God in worshiping God. There's a particular uh, emphasis here on mercy because prior to coming to Christ, the Gentiles as a people, most of us who are here being non-Jews, being Gentiles, we were alienated from God. We were without hope, without God, without a covenant. That is to say, God had made no special relationship to us. We had no special relationship. We were not included, he says, in any of the covenants. We weren't included in them. This is what Ephesians says. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So none of the covenants of the Old Testament specifically included the Gentiles. They were all made to the Jews. We had no covenant of promise. And yet even without any kind of covenant, God still showed mercy to us. Although we were far off, He brought us near. He welcomed us. He received us into His intimacy. And so that generates a particular understanding of God's mercy toward us. He was merciful toward the Jews, but He was particularly merciful toward us. They were covenant violators and received God's mercy. We were without a covenant and received God's mercy. But to say that we were without a covenant doesn't mean that God had no plan for us. Because Paul goes on to demonstrate by quoting from four passages of Scripture, that this is exactly what God intended all along. In fact, he quotes two Psalms, one passage from the law, from the Pentateuch, and one from the prophets. This was the threefold division of the Old Testament according to the Jews. You had the law, you had the prophets, and then you had the writings, which would have been the Psalms and the Proverbs and things like that. So Paul, is, he goes on to make this statement and he validates it by going to the broad scope, the whole scope of the Old Testament and showing in the, in, in the, in the law, in the prophets, and in the writings, this was what God had always said He wanted to do. And what links these four passages together in every one of them is the mention of the word Gentiles, sweeping across the entire Old Testament, showing that at every phase of God's revelation, He had a plan for including Gentiles in His work of salvation. And so Jesus, his work was not only confirming the scriptures of promise to redeem Israel, his work was also confirming God's plan to bring Gentiles into fellowship with him. 
And Paul confirms this. He quotes, first of all, in verse 9 from Psalm 18, where David envisions a day. David's writing Psalm 18. He envisions a day when he would be praising God along with the Gentiles in the assembly of God's people. This is what he says. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So somehow David understood this. He understood that there was coming a day where Gentiles would be standing alongside of him praising. And then secondly, in verse 10, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32, the most quoted chapter from the Old Testament. It pictures Moses, who wrote that chapter, summoning the Gentiles to worship with him. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So Moses is pictures a day when Gentiles will actually join in with the Jews in rejoicing with, excuse me, with the Lord. And Paul actually uh, lifts this again and, and shows it to us as a part of God's plan. In fact, you may remember Deuteronomy 32 was central in Paul's argument of Romans 11. Whenever he talked about how this work among the Gentiles would be used by God to stir the Jews to jealousy. So that although they were unbelieving, because they see the Gentiles begin to believe, they'll be stirred to jealousy and repent and believe. This is part of God's plan. And then thirdly, verse 11, Paul quotes again from, Psalm, uh, from the Psalms, this time from 117, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. Those of you that know your Bible well, know that Psalm 117 is the shortest psalm, the shortest chapter in the Bible, just two verses. Paul quotes from verse 1, but then in the second half of the verse, it's just a celebration of two things. It's a celebration of God's mercy and God's truthfulness. Same two themes that Paul has here in Romans 15. He's just saying this is a part of God's plan. This is the way he's going to establish his mercy and his truthfulness. And then finally, in verse 12, Paul quotes from the prophets from Isaiah 11, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And this pictures Israel. He talks about a root. He pictures Israel as a tree that had been cut down to the stump. It had been cut all the way down. It would have been probably presumed to be dead until he begins to prophesy and say that out of that stump, out of what appeared to be deadness in Israel, there will shoot out a branch. There will come forth from it a shoot, he says. This will be the Messiah, the promised one. And he goes on to talk about this, this, this work uh, within decimated Israel, how this shoot arises and renews the tree that once appeared to be dead, bringing it back to life. And then down in verse 10 of Isaiah 11, a part of that work, he goes on to say, will be that the Messiah will also rule the Gentiles because he will bring them salvation. They will begin to hope in him. Isaiah 11 says they'll actually inquire of him. They'll worship him. They'll study him. They'll inquire of him. So four passages of Scripture from across the spectrum of the Old Testament showing that while God had a plan for Israel, He had made promise to them, He also had a plan for the Gentiles. And God's plan was for these very different peoples to all be united together around His throne in worship. Now why is Paul saying all that? Why is he saying all that? Because he wanted these Romans 
to understand. Look, you've been thrown into a church together. Here you are, you're the opening generation of the church. Something brand new, you've been thrown into this church together with people who are very different than you. And I understand it's hard, and I understand it takes sacrifice, and I understand that it takes a lot of things. But you need to understand that that messiness that you're in is what God envisioned. Two different kinds of peoples, all kinds of different peoples, from all kinds of different perspectives, all worshiping God together. He didn't create a Jewish church. He didn't create a Gentile church. He didn't create two separate entities. He brought them all together. And He did it for a reason, for a purpose, because He wanted to demonstrate the power of His gospel. And so He he presents Jesus here as the servant, as the minister, who's bringing all of this about. He had a purpose in His sacrifice. He had a purpose in the giving of Himself to achieve this vision. And so the question is, if Jesus was willing to make such a sacrifice to see the people of God united in worship like this, are you willing to do the same? Can you capture the same vision? If he was willing to come and to welcome Jews, but also to welcome Gentiles, are you willing to do the same? This is like Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. To those outside the law, became like those outside the law. To those under the law, became like those under the law. Why? So that I might win every person to Christ. So that I might help fulfill this grand vision of the Old Testament, of God and His plan of salvation. Were Jews in Rome willing to accept Gentiles who had very different lifestyles than them in order to fulfill this vision of a united people worshiping God? Were Gentiles willing to forego their particular freedoms in order to remain united with Jews in order to fulfill the vision of a united people worshiping God? Were they willing to do And follow the example of the minister, Christ Jesus. Well, third element of a church that's united for God's glory. They not only remember Christ's mercy and not only confirm Scripture's testimony. But thirdly, they abound in hope. They have the hope of the gospel confirmed and abounding in their hearts. Paul says it in verse 13. It's just kind of like a prayer. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Spirit you might abound in hope. Paul had just talked in verse 12 about this work among the Gentiles so that they hope in God. And he picks up on this idea of hope and he offers this prayer for its fulfillment. He wants to see the Scripture confirmed in them and to see them abounding abounding in this hope. The way you do that, he says, the way you do that is for you to be filled with joy, first of all, not grief over your differences, not grief over the way that you're offended or all those other things, but filled with joy and to be filled with peace in believing that your faith would lead to these things. You remember Back in chapter 14, verse 17, Paul had said that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
It's really not about your particular preferences. It's really not about your particular qualms. It's really not about all of those things. It's about what? It's about joy and peace united together with people who might be very different than you. Joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. And he wants them to have this joy in the face of difficult people, in the face of difficult circumstances, your joy transcending whatever's going on around you because your joy doesn't arise from you always having people who think the same as you do or follow the same kind of conscience issues that you do. Your joy doesn't come from that. Your joy comes from the Lord. Your joy comes from the overwhelming mercy of God that He saved you in spite of what you deserve. He wants them to have this kind of joy so that they are worshiping God properly. And then he wants them to also have peace, which is the, what the Spirit of God produces among His people. Remember, these are just fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace. God's called the God of peace. He's the God who works peace among us, establishing peace Within us. In fact, over in chapter 16, if you look over to chapter 16, Paul begins in verse 17 to talk about those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the teaching that you have been given. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. But notice what he says down in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So this is the God of peace. This is the God who establishes peace. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying, he's saying to them, I, this is what I'm longing for. I'm longing for you to have this kind of joy, this kind of fervency in the gospel as you remember God's mercy, and I'm longing for you to understand what peace is. That the very peace that Christ established with you would rule in your hearts, as Colossians 3 says. The peace of Christ ruling in your hearts. He's not talking about just a sense of tranquility. If you read Colossians 3, where Paul calls for the peace of Christ to rule, to dictate, to dominate your life, your heart. It's all within the context of what? Forgiveness. Bearing up with one another. Showing patience with one another. And so he says, I want, I want Christ peace to dictate your heart. To govern it. To rule it. So that the work of the Spirit might be established in you. And so when you're finding joy in the gospel, because the gospel has brought you so much mercy, and because of that, you're establishing peace. The result of that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is what? You will abound in hope. You'll abound in hope. You won't be lost in hopelessness. You won't be dejected, disillusioned, cast down. You see the Spirit working within the body of Christ all around you the way that He's supposed to be working you, instead of being focused on yourself and all the, 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 the ailments or instead of focused on yourself and, and all the offenses and all those other things, your focus now is where? It's on His work. It's on His gospel. It's on the worship of Christ. 
that people are rendering to Him, even weak believers, even strong believers, even believers with whom you might have disagreements, but they're all gathering together and they're all confessing Christ and worshiping Christ. And so the hope of the Gentiles and the hope of Israel is being exalted. This word hope, which is really just another word for expectation, you may remember Romans 8, the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, he says in Romans 8.20, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So he's saying that there's a certain kind of, there's a certain kind of brokenness. There's a certain kind of bondage that's all around us. We know that. We're not surprised by that. But it's in reflecting upon that that we actually turn our hearts to the day of freedom. The day of hope. And he goes on to say in verse 24 of Romans 8, In this hope you were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. But who, for who hopes for what he sees? Just saying, but I want heaven now. I want it to be like heaven now. I want everything to be hunky-dory now. Well, that's not hope. That's not hope. You don't get to see it all right now, but you're supposed to. He says, if we hope for what we do not see, we Wait for it with patience. You say it takes a lot of patience. Yeah, it does. It does take a lot of patience. That's the realities of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We go through the brokenness, we go through the sadness, we go through the hurt and the pain, but we keep receiving, we keep welcoming, we keep embracing, we keep accepting while we turn our eyes not on our personal grievances, but on the hope that's before us. We abound in it. Filled with the joy of the gospel, filled with the peace of the gospel, getting your eyes on the big picture. When all these believers will one day be gathered together with you around the throne of our Savior. Very quickly, a fourth element of a church that's united for the glory of God. Remember, they remember Christ's mercy. They confirm Scripture's testimony. They abound in hope. And then finally, in verse 14, they exhort one another. They exhort one another. This is really a a transitional verse where Paul links verses 7 through 13 with his comments about his travel plans, but it still has to do with these divisions. And Paul simply says, I'm satisfied, I'm confident, my brothers, that you yourselves are, first of all, full of goodness, second of all, filled with all knowledge, and then as a consequence, able to instruct one another. I'm convinced you have the resources, you have what it takes, Christ has given you what you need. I'm convinced that you can find this kind of joy and peace and hope. I'm convinced that you can find this kind of focus on the glory of God. And so after sort of a whole chapter of, you might say, rebuke to them, he ends with this note of confidence and affirmation. I've prayed that you might be united in this hope and worship and peace and joy and fellowship, and I'm confident that you have the resources provided, first of all, that you have goodness. Well, what's goodness? Well, it's just the concrete acts of kindness. Whereas kindness might speak about an attitude, goodness is the outworking of that attitude. And sometimes people just forget to be good. 
They just forget to do concrete acts of, of uh, generosity and kindness to one another. And so because of how Christ has treated you, you're committed to treating one another with these acts of goodness. He says, if you have that within you, if you're filled with these kinds of acts of goodness, and then secondly, if you're filled with knowledge, that is to say that you have an understanding of the Bible, of the gospel, you have that. You might even be directing this at those who are strong, whose depth of knowledge and doctrine needs to be matched by an equal bounty of good deeds. doesn't always happen. You remember Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when he was writing to them about their own divisions within the church. And he specifically talks to those who are filled with knowledge. He says, your knowledge can puff you up. Your knowledge. You might know a lot about the Bible. You might, you might be... You know, whipping everybody and debates and arguments and all that. You might have all that stuff down. And all it's done is caused you to forget the mercy that you've received. It's puffed you up. So you have to have both. It's like two wings of a plane, right? You can't fly without both. You have to have knowledge and you have to have the humble acts of goodness. And he says, if you have those two things, if you have those two things, you are able to exhort. That's just another word for coming alongside and helping people grow in Christ. It's not necessarily a strong rebuke. In fact, in, in some cases, it might be quite gentle. It might even be what we might call discipleship. Sometimes we, we translate that word counseling. But he's saying that whatever it is, you can come alongside of this weak believer, you can come alongside of this strong believer, but if you have those two things, if you are sound in doctrine, and if you have worked it out in your life so that your life is, is abounding with good deeds, if you have all that, if you are a practitioner of your knowledge, not just a speaker of it, then you have the, whatever it takes to counsel, to exhort, to disciple, to encourage. This is why we're so adamant here about equipping people with the kind of training we give them in our biblical counseling ministry. We don't need to go out to the world and to its, you know, its uh, atheistic and ungodly methods when people are uh, cast into some sort of despair. We know we have the resources. If we just take the knowledge the Lord's given us and we apply it into our lives, we learn all of the subtleties of sin and what it's like to battle that in our life and how to overcome that and continue to walk out, uh, work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. We know all those things. We apply those two things. And what does the Bible say? Then you are able. You're equipped. You can counsel one another. You can exhort one another. You can come along and help one another. This is what a church that's united for the glory of God does. This is what a church that has a focus on God's plan does. Doesn't run away from problem people. Doesn't run away from the weak. Doesn't run away from the strong. Doesn't run away from Jew and Gentile. It welcomes them. Comes alongside Apollos. Comes alongside of someone who might be 
less mature, comes alongside of them, wraps their arm around them. They might be offensive to you. They might be hard to get along with, but you bring them in. You bring them in. You love them with the deeds of kindness and you gently admonish them to see if the Lord might use you in helping them grow. It's a glorious picture. It's a church that understands eternal things. A church that gets the gospel. A church that exists. A church that's unified for the glory of God. If you're here this day, today and you hear this described and it's nothing that, just, that, that reflects your experience. All you know is brokenness, discord, fights and quarrels, maybe in your home, maybe in your family, at work, whatever. You don't know anything about the peace of Christ. You don't know anything about joy. You certainly don't know anything about hope. This is what the gospel is. The gospel is Christ taking our sinfulness, our brokenness, and paying the price, taking God's wrath, so that he can bring us in, reconcile us to God. And once he reconciles us to God, he pours into our life these things. Joy, peace, hope, goodness. I don't care what you've done. God can change you. God can redeem even you. He can make you one of his own. He can make you a vessel for his glory. We encourage you today to respond to that gospel. Whether it's here, you want to come talk to me afterward, I'll be available. Or whether it's at home or whether it's with another believer that you know, please find someone so that you don't go another day without knowing this salvation. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're grateful for this word. So thankful that you have given us what you've given us. You've included us with what you've included us in. We're grateful that you were a minister of peace and reconciliation. A minister giving yourself for the glory of God. Lord, I pray that we would be of that same mindset. Help us, Lord, to guard our fellowship, to guard our love for one another, to guard our, our, our abounding hope in you by laying ourselves down, continuing to work and admonish one another, continuing to be filled with joy and peace and believing as we think through all that you've done for us, how could we not show the same love to one another? And so, Lord, we pray for your spirit to fill us, to do his work for his glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.